Welcome to Current Openings Number 6, The Human Predicament and the Planetary Program. We know from recent conversations the path out of the addiction trap and other unhealthy habitual patterns leads to a life of better balance between the head and the heart and closer natural alignment with the ways, energies, and rhythms of the planet. But it's really just a start. The journey can go much deeper. For the human, aligning to the natural speeds, cycles, and energies of the planet allows us to better sense our own finer inner systems and technology that by design connect to universal systems and intelligence which we flow in mutual exchange with our host, the planet. Aviv Shahar and David Price Francis give us more insight and understanding of this amazing process in today's conversation. You can listen to the entire current opening series by visiting portalsofperception.org and be sure to look at our events page for the upcoming current openings online events. Here now, Current openings number six, the human predicament and the planetary program. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, Come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation. At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. Welcome to Portals of Perception and to Current Openings. What the World Doesn't Quite Get Yet, Episode 6, where David Price, Francis, and I endeavor to open the current of human endeavor through these times of change. Today, we bring the focus to the human predicament and the planetary program. David is a spiritual teacher and a transformation expert helping individuals, couples, and groups improve the quality of their lives and relationships. David, welcome. Hey, thank you, Aviv. Good to be with you again. We're yeah. opening six. We're making progress. We are making progress. And let me begin today with three observations on our recent conversations where we started to open the human predicament. And we want today to expand that and bring the planetary program into the conversation and potentially touch some of the redemptive dimensions of the planetary program. So the first observation is that we reflected on this idea that the way the brain was captured because of what has occurred over the last 400 years and how as a result, we are operating now in a highly imbalanced, addictive and toxic environment. And that that somehow continually reinforces this insane egoic separation from life. It's the idea that the brain kind of exists in, it, in its own universe. And we suggested that the problem cannot be solved at the level it was created. 
which means that the brain cannot solve its own problem, which is a way of saying a separated ego cannot release its separation. It needs the entire human person engaging all its natural capacities to facilitate that release. And what we intend to, as we will go further on this journey, is to bring this idea of what does it mean to engage the whole person in a natural way, in its natural alignment and natural intelligence, and such that it will facilitate a communion with all that brings can bring enhancement to human life and the healing and the elevation that can be found through these realms. So in the last conversation, we talked about the imagery of the lake. And as you said, the first step is to stop dropping more toxicity into the lake. Yeah. And then we said the even larger redemptive option is engaging that stream of life that can become the, the river of life that can ultimately bring the clear water to clear and redeem the, the lake. And the, the hopeful message there is that, as we are saying, the, the egoic separation cannot heal itself, but life can. So mm-hmm. the, there is, we don't need to do the heavy lifting. Life can do the heavy lifting. So that's the first observation. What would you, by way of grounding first in, in this, what would you add to that? Reflecting back into a previous current openings where we spoke about harmonizing, why are we out of harmony with natural law? That our systems are naturally working by planetary law. So this is where today we're going to be speaking about the planetary program. And it's inescapable. Like a person might on the one hand go, well, I, I want to be free. We hear that a lot. Yeah, I want to be free. Freedom. And yet we don't want to be free from breathing in and out. We don't want to be free from sleeping. We don't want to be free from eating. We actually have certain programs, planetary programs that we need to fulfill to live. And the more we can be in harmony with those programs, I think the more we can connect. We stop dumping so much toxicity into the, uh, really into the body and its systems. And also the more we connect into that natural stream of life which we are programmed for by the universe and at a local level by our planetary program. We are planetary creatures after all. There's no evidence of any of us leaving the planet except to make it to the moon, but we haven't gone beyond there. And um, we don't even know how well we'll survive the experience. We do know there's bone density loss just coming to and from the moon. So it's open to questions. So personally, my own take on it is glad to stay on the planet. And if someone gives me a ticket to go up in SpaceX, I shall pass it on. <laughs> so you are already sitting at what we are about to enter with a planetary program. The second observation is one that you framed, which is a simple, powerful and actually a shocking case to establish the insanity, the, the complete and total craziness that we are observing in this world. When you pointed that the, the killing and the weaponry industry and the drug industry yeah. are more valued, much more valued, and each generating 
greater returns for shareholders than the food industry. So I thought that was such a powerful observation. And the more I reflected on it, the, the clearer it becomes that this staggering fact is a result not of one or two choices, but many, many value choices, many policy decisions, and multiple cultural and socioeconomic preferences that together produce that result. We're life-killing and life-destroying seem to be much more valuable than life-supporting and life-enhancing. So, and it is so shocking that I, I had to say this to myself out loud to listen to what it says to, so I can actually feel that this is a world, this world is now run by a paradigm where life-killing and life-destroying is more valuable, more profitable than life-supporting and life-sustaining. And the one thing that makes this even more horrific and insane is that it has been normalized and right. that we accept this madness as just that's the way the world is. And the, the million and one value choices, policy choices, cultural preferences that created this paradigm and insanity is completely normalized. So what that actually says is that the powers to be, the, the program that runs this world, the geopolitical, the, the socioeconomic program, that program prefers destruction and killing of a supporting life. And what we observe by saying that it has been normalized is that humanity at large, uh, inside this paradigm, we have been desensitized mm -hmm. and we've been separated from the natural intuition, the natural instinct that would naturally wire us to support life, to enhance life, to do all that we can to facilitate the continuance of life. And that we are so desensitized to how distorted, degenerative, and messed up that is. So that's my second observation. Well, to take up the theme of normalization, I realized something the other day when I was out, I was out for a walk and there were cars coming by. And I, it dawned on me, I, I'm telling myself that I love the trees and I'm looking at the trees. And then I realized in my life, in terms of the actual programming by what's visible, I have seen more cars than trees. So although I might tell myself trees are the priority in my life, the reality of what I've seen and witnessed is that cars are much more populous in their numbers than trees in my own personal experience. And then how in the normalization process, we get programmed by what it is we see and hear and register. So although we might know something as a fact, it um, and it may have with it an objective truth, there's also the normalization. If someone is living in a part of a city where they don't actually see cows, they don't see sheep, they don't see goats. They literally come to believe that milk arrives in a bottle, you know, because that's where it comes from, because that's their experience, or these days in a carton. So that's part of that normalization. And according to the environment that a child grows up in, we do become normalized to certain things. So if we look at an extreme example right now, which is more the case than when we would have been growing up, 
is the sheer amount of violence present in video games, on the TV. So there was, you know, the actual number of violent incidents that a child sees by the time they're sort of 15 in the Western world is extreme. It's in the multiple thousands. So not to harp too much on it because one can sound like an old, like, oh, you know, playing a bit of the, oh, how bad things have become. But it's more trying to get away from an emotional reaction or emotive reaction and just say, well, what is the adult world doing to the child world when the adult world is pulling in as much profit as possible and sailing as close to the line of uh, the law as possible, as long as they can pull back a profit. And we're normalized to that. Like, you know, when my dad was growing up to see a picture in the naturalist of, you know, of a girl with just a few clothes on was a very unusual thing. Now I think by the age of 10 or 11, it's a very different scenario. And that changes the way that we perceive changes our portals of perception. And uh, what it made me realize is the way that we view things or what we view changes how we view, like in our portals. You know, what when we view something, it changes and we have certain views. We say, oh, that's my view. Well, according to our bias or our view, that changes how we view things. So we get to see nothing so unusual about a TV screen with one person firing a gun at another or, you know, multiple people doing that. And it's, it's acceptable. Whereas against uh, planetary program, how acceptable is that? It doesn't get questioned. So it's uh, it's such an interesting dynamic. So this is very curious the way you picked it up because it leads directly to the third observation when you talk about automobiles and us seeing more cars than trees. Because the third observation is that we have now been oriented to believe that technology will solve all our problems. We've been conditioned mm-hmm. because so much of the solutioning of the last 50, 60, 70 years came through technology, 120 years if we include cars, right? Yes. And what we have to realize is that technology is both the gift that keeps giving, but is also the thief that keeps robbing. Yeah. And it's that agony and, and ecstasy. And we probably should do and plan a, an episode that we just do a deep dive on the human predicament and the technology a problem. That's a good one. Yes. A good one. Yeah. The, in the context of where we are, it's the realization that we have privileged the exterior world and the privileged exterior technology over and above interior human capacity and technology. So much that the technological drive of the last several decades, the, the suggestion is replacing human life, replacing human in, in so many aspects of what we can do. And the premise that I'm realizing as we reflected on the human predicament so far is that we are likely to have a rude awakening in the coming decades, that silicon-based technology will continue to offer important developments and breakthroughs, but will ultimately be realized to be creating as many problems and leading us to a very dangerous threshold. And that instead we have to look at how can we get retethered 
into the engagement of what, yes, technology can bring, but technologies that support human life, support natural human environment, technologies that support the capacity of humans to get retethered to the process of life. I'd leave it at that and create for us a space to come back to do a deep dive on technology. That is an important awareness to seed before we transition into the planetary program. Well, it's interesting how you focus on silicon technology too. So increasingly, I'm interested in our, our natural human technology in a way is carbon-based. And uh, I can recall even being at school when I was 16 and the chemistry professor was presenting silicon and its properties and what it was for and how it could be used. And he actually said if there was an alternative universe, rather than being carbon-based as we are, it would be silicon-based because that would be an alternative universe. And for whatever reason, that stuck with me. Kind of some things go in the head and they like hold. And so that idea that it's almost like our brain has been producing a kind of alternative universe based in silicon, ultimately where someone can put on a set of goggles and they can be, their whole planetary equipment can be responding to a brain that's in quite a different make-believe space. So you see someone who's like shooting at aliens from their brain and their body is actually in quite a different space than their brain. And that has to produce acute contradiction inside our system, rather like we mentioned in the brain-body conundrum. So if we, there is a planetary program for us to work with, and I think that's part of the accountability, as you said. It's like a motor car seemed to be a great invention back when Henry Ford and probably 200 other companies were working on it. And now the effects of the motor car and the pollution of the ecology are coming home to roost. So as you say, it's very much got a clockwise result, which is convenience, and a counterclockwise result, which is poisoning our air. So ultimately, if we keep poisoning our air, that's going to have an impact back upon our ability to live and to breathe. So there's a balance to be found whereby the technology, as you say, is supportive to human life. And we have a governance around it where we're very cautious about the side effects. And that may be the world that we're moving towards as we head into a period of such great accountability that it causes a reevaluation. So we're bringing these three bridging observations to the exploration today of the planetary program. And so let's introduce this idea. And let me ask you, David, when you observe and study life, what is the program that supports and enables life? And what, what is it that we mean when we say the planetary program? All right. There's a question. Well, let, let's just start at the simplest level in organic life. I'm going to, I'm going to skip over the, the rocks and the, the minerals. I'm going straight to organic life. And let's go to the, the kind of organic life that most of us experience and see most often. I would say, which is plant life. So, and let's again, keep that really simple and look at the fact that the earth supplies the energy and let's take the form of a tree. So one way I like to look at trees is that trees actually spread their branches in both directions. One is what we visibly see, which is they're reaching up toward the sun. 
and they're bringing in the cosmic energy from the sun through themselves and are growing because of the light of the sun. And we witness that and we see that. But down beneath our feet, there's the equivalent of the tree reaching to the sun, and the tree is reaching into the planet. The tree is growing roots into the planet, which we call roots because we kind of see what's visible going toward the sun as in some way superior. But to the tree, the, both parts are equally important. So there's the rooting and there's the reaching into the earth to gather the nutrients from the earth. And if, this, if the tree doesn't have any earth to root into, the tree cannot grow. So the planet supplies the energy for the tree to grow. But if the sun wasn't sending cosmic energy and cosmic vibration from its level to the tree, the tree also could not grow. So there's a planetary program of receiving energy from the planet and then reaching toward other cosmic energies which come and are captured by the planet. And I believe this is why in ancient times they not only looked at the sun as providing energies to a plant, but they looked at other local planets as providing energies to a plant. And so they did things like put the poppy with Mars or let's take a tree, the oak tree, they put with Jupiter. They said there's a, it gathers solar energy, but it also gathers a sort of Jupiter frequency. Now, that's been somewhat abandoned these days because that seemed to be hocus pocus. Personally, I see astronomy and astrology as a mutual science. It's simply the physical and the energetic. So when I go out to get a suntan, that's astrology because I'm experiencing the energy of the sun. When I look out and I see the moon drawing the oceans, well, that's astronomy and astrology because you can see the effect of the moon pulling the ocean. It's amazing. That magnet is so powerful, it pulls the entire Atlantic and Pacific Ocean toward itself. So it also affects us when we get to the human. So the tree is working with a planetary energy and that planetary energy creates a program to receive other cosmic energies, including the energy from the sun. And we can see the, the proof of this in so many ways. If you take an acorn and plant it in the ground and then watch it grow and nurture it so it gets the right nutrients, then you get this magnificent oak tree appears from it. And how does that happen? It's like nature is the great almost conjurer creating something from nothing because there's this tiny little acorn and it grows into an oak tree. So there's a program built in. It doesn't grow into a sycamore tree. It doesn't grow into, it doesn't grow into a petunia or something different. It has its uh, blueprint built in according to which it grows. And so when we look at the level of a tree, a tree is attached to its food. We don't see, you know, a tree, I sometimes look at a tree by the side of a road and see the cars going by and the pollution and the electromagnetic frequencies emitted. Think, well, if the tree could, it would pick up its roots and it would run to another field, put itself back down again. But it can't do that. So it's rooted to the spot. And that would be the life of the, the tree. When we get to, to well, I call it fauna life, we get to animal life, we look to, the, say, the squirrels. I look out here and I see squirrels running about and there's other. But let's just look at that one example. The squirrel is not attached to its food. So it has a planetary program, but it's living in unconscious, you could say unconscious and semi-conscious harmony with the planet. 
It's instinctively wired. So I think birds are an even better example because you look at a flock of starlings and you see them all move in the same moment, in the same direction. You think, how do they know how to do that? They're not having a conference, you know, a conference of birds saying, well, we're going to turn left when we get up to that particular tree and then we'll do a right swing. It's not like humans trying to plan some aerial acrobatics. They just do it instinctively because they're fully programmed. So when it comes to the rest of organic life, not human, it's fully programmed with what it's designed to be. And so an oak tree is an oak tree is an oak tree. It doesn't try and change into something else. A squirrel, you never see it trying to behave like something it isn't. They're fully wired, fully programmed, and working by their, I'd say by their instinct primarily. And they have an instinctive response just like we humans also have an instinctive response. But you know, just holding with those two forms of life at the moment, and then we can look at the, the fold over into human life and how many of the same programs that are at work in nature in the rest of organic life also appear in us. But I'll take a pause there to pass back to you before we get onto the human. Well, so you are describing that... The planetary program is a program that enables and supports life. And then that within that program, it allows the diversity of many different kinds of trees and many different kinds of animal life and many different, all of us, right? Yes. And then you are also describing in the way you talk about the, the tree as a living organism that allows the, the emergence of planetary processes and life with the, the photosynthesis and the, the sun, the solar and, and the cosmic energy that, that arrive to the planet, what that brings to us to, to realize is that wherever we see life, we see a functioning that's based on reciprocity. So any form of life we will look at, we will discover that it has a reciprocal process with its environment. And you could observe there that while the environment is in support of the oak tree or the sycamore tree, the bird and the squirrel, they perform a certain function, a certain service in reciprocal way to enable the environment to cleanse itself, regenerate itself, sustain life. So I'd, I'd observe that inherent in the planetary program is that all forms of life engage in some kind of a reciprocity process. And when that is broken down, when one form of life decides to take over and breaks the equilibrium that allows for reciprocity, what we have is a habitat, is an ecosystem that's leading sooner or later to a form of collapse. Mm-hmm. And so, but I'd, I'd offer that. What else would you say to, to instantiate this idea that there is a program that runs life? And then, as you say, there is the program that enables trees and flowers and all other forms of life. What else do we want in this initial exploration of framing the the planetary program to say? That there's a relationship 
between all forms of life and our home planet. Um, so it could even take the Native American idea of all our relatives, that there's a relationship between us as one form of organic life and the rest of organic life. And there's a relationship between organic life and the planet. And I like to use the word the planet herself, because I think of the planet as feminine. I think of the word mater, which gives us the word matter. So when something matters, gives us the word matrix. So there's a matrix of life. There's a matrix of naturally supported life. And these life forms, they make a return to the planet herself. How do they do that? Well, one thing is they cause her matter to grow. When we see currently as, as the human digs down for fossil fuels, how are they even there? Well, they're there because the planet supported the trees that took in the solar energy that then was condensed, which then the human can extract again. So it's uh, stored solar energy. So for whatever reason, the planet's been building stores of solar power, solar energy for literally billions of years. So and at a physical level, there's the, there's the return. Like if we look at 8 billion human beings moving towards the, the human, then as each of us dies, you know, I like to say, well, where were you 100 years ago? Right. So I said this to a room of people. They're like, well, we weren't here. And where will you be in 100 years time? Well, not here. So that's 8 billion, you know, 8 billion material humans, which started off as one cell beings and became like six feet tall or five feet tall or whatever, and then leave our, our matter behind just at a physical level. And so why do we always have to dig down to find ancient cities? Why aren't they still on the surface? Because the mater keeps growing matter. She's a growing, developing being. And this is where we get a little bit more out there in terms of what the world doesn't quite get yet, in that every form of life is processing energy and so is receiving and transmitting energy from different energetic sources because we're all we have to get our energy from somewhere. We look at this with the human, but you look at a squirrel and it is in a way processing squirrel energy. Or you look at a cat and it's processing cat energy, it's processing the energies that belong with that particular form of life. So I, I, look, I look at organic life as like a whole series of, in modern terminology, satellite dishes, and it receiving different energies and then transmitting those energies through into the planet. So the planet is growing both materially and energetically every day. And we are, whether we like to think we're free or not free or whatever, however we think ourselves as human beings, we are part of that process. And we have, we're running planetary programs every day. As an example, the programs that keep our heart beating, that keep our stomach working, that keep our kidneys processing. We don't actually know how to do any of these things. Like, you know, if our brain was responsible for doing these things, we'd be really stuck. We'd be like saying, well, hello, Aviv. Oh, I forgot my heart. <laughs> so let me try and take the three things you just offered there and begin to weave the, the unfolding of the story. First, we're talking about a program and the idea of a planetary program. And secondly, you just framed this idea that, again, it's about processing energy and it's about how the those programs, they run on energy. And thirdly, you grounded us back in the human and the two part, two systems of the human. So let me try and, and uh, 
offer the, the following first full inquiry. What is the idea? Why is the evolutionary process building this capacity that we call a program? What's the reason for programs in, in the universe? Another name for a program you used earlier was a blueprint. Why is this a universe that develops platform programs? What's the idea behind that? And to answer that question, we actually need to ask another question that you already answered, but I'll ask the question, then I'll use your answer, which is what is the currency? What is the precious currency of the universe? Currency of life in the universe? Well, the currency is energy. We need energy to move things. We need energy to facilitate change. For anything in this universe to happen, there is a need to invest and to spend energy. We can say the universe is full of energy. We can say the universe is energy, and energy is the universe. Okay, so then what is the inner logic of the universe, and why will it need to facilitate this idea of programs? Well, we are proposing that the universe has this uh, built-in logic that it wants to preserve itself. It wants to preserve life. So therefore, it is always conserving energy. And the, the way that it does so is by building programs. Because so if you say, so what are the evidences? What is the expression? through which we can see that the universe works to preserve life or life works to preserve itself, the same idea. Well, the two levels of this expression is what we earlier explored in the idea of natural laws. Because what we essentially said was the universe developed for itself a core program, an operating system, such that it will facilitate universal interoperability. It's a fancy word to express the idea that one part of the universe will be able to speak to another part of the universe and they will both be able to understand each other because the entirety of the universe unfolds out of a core program and those building blocks, such as that every living thing needs to inhale and exhale, right? such that in the case of trees, they are connected to the food, but the squirrels need to collect their foods, and we humans can choose to select the food that we will consume. So underlying those different levels of life, there are what we describe as core operating system, natural laws that enable the universe to proceed, as you said, without needing to reinvent itself every day in the morning, when the universe wakes up. So that's one way to express the, the economic idea of a program. Mm -hmm. If you take it a step above that to the evolution of life and the, the process of life, what we are seeing is the, the phenomenon that every time evolution is able to come up with a new evolutionary step, the capacity that was developed is made universally available for life, for all life. So as an example, when life came up with this extraordinary evolution of the cell, 
the patent of the cell as a core fundamental structure of organic life. That evolutionary blueprint becomes available for all organic life and is downloaded in each species according to the design specification of that life. Mm-hmm. But it's not that when the tiger decides to evolve and where the eagle decides to evolve, that they need to develop a new core operating system for cells. That innovation, that innovative idea, that program underlies all life. In a similar way, you could say life invested enormous amount of energy in the evolution of photosynthesis. But once photosynthesis is there, the program is available for the oak tree, the sycamore tree, and all other trees. And so I'm observing simply that that the idea, the, the, the master up of the universe is actually developing programs. And underlying that is the program that enables life to develop programs inside of which there is the programmability feature, which is that when life evolves this capacity or a new solution for whatever it is that it it tries to do, it doesn't need to recreate it. It memorizes it. So that as one more example, so when neural pathways, that innovation is developed and the, the connective capacity of nerve ends to connect to each other such that then the, it will unleash the capacity of the brain to create new circuitries. That is an evolution that's based on one layer upon another layer upon another layer of program. So the neural pathway is a foundational program. And then as an example, sight is a program. And so when you look at the eye of an eagle, and the eye of a deer, and the eye of a dolphin, the specification will be different. But the blueprint of sight and the functionality of sight as part of the evolution of life and how it supports organic life, fauna, and humans is there. It doesn't need to be recreated. And I'm proposing that is a foundational element of the planetary program. Yes. And you're giving us an excellent example right now, Aviv, because what's happening is through that whole segment inside of which you're working to understand and explain about planetary programs, your own systems, which have existing programs by which they operate, you weren't needing to pause to think about breathing. You weren't needing to pause to think about your heartbeat. You weren't needing to pause to think about your kidneys working. All of that is, is those stages are already set. Just like in organic life, the programs are already running. And then it, it seems that there's this leading edge of creation. And you're, example, you're exemplifying it right there, in which creation is trying to understand and talk about itself and work out how it does things. And that makes me think about the human side of things, the human program by which we have got this two-stage program where we're on the one hand fully responsive, our body is fully responsive to the planetary program, 
But then we have tools like mathematics, language, where we're using these tools to try and understand how the universe actually works, which is built into us, it would seem. Like when looking at human life, there are these endeavors, whether it be theoretical physics, the whole dynamic of science, when you get it to its real origin rather than the science of convenience, I call it essence science or essential science, is trying to get to, like Einstein, I believe, said it, how does God do it? Hmm. How does creation actually work? So we've got this other urge built into us, um, which is to be engaging with that. And that's where, when as soon as you introduce that word evolution, it's like squirrels, much as I may love to watch them in the park, or even sitting under the oak tree, they're not on the leading edge of evolution anymore. They're doing something which is prescribed, it's preset, and they're doing it very effectively. Maybe daffodils get a little bit more energetically powerful each year as each cycle goes by, but they're not suddenly evolving into a new form of consciousness. But it seems that something in the human is constantly seeking to improve, to evolve. And what we have with the human predicament, which you pointed out earlier, is that that endeavor has been turned into an externalization of how can we improve the planet? Well, maybe the planet really doesn't need improving. Maybe we need to sort of turn that around and go, how can we support the planet in what she already does very well? Thank you. So it's a little ironic to me when people are going to church for a service, right? right? I used to, my parents would take me to church. Uh, we've got a Welsh background and we'd go to church for a service. And the idea was somehow we're offering a service to God. And I found this very odd because I'm thinking, I don't think God needs a service. Like you take your car for a service, right? But humans, we regularly need a service. So the idea of going to church was more taking oneself to a place where there's some kind of higher energy meant to be present that services us and puts us into better condition to do a better job for the next week rather than the other way around. Um, but it's that hubris somehow that the human has in its ego identification that we're the sort of the powerful being on the planet. But like the Weber telescope is showing us right now, we need to look at our perspective. We're just one little, it's, we're living on a blue speck in the far eastern edge of the Milky Way. We're not even near galactic center. You know, we're not at the center of things at all. We're like a, a little experiment on the far edge of the Milky Way. And I wonder if the rest of the universe wouldn't look at us and go, boy, they think they're important. <laughs> so, so you brought us right back to the, the human conundrum. And we still have to make some moves here. So bear with us as you follow this conversation, because we need to still make a few moves to present why we are describing the planetary program, which we're describing as something that enables life. Yes. Why do we place it inside the context of the human predicament? But to just reestablish again, what we are describing with the planetary program. The planetary program we're describing as a multi-layered programmable capacity of life. And we are describing that that capacity includes the, the life's programmable capacity such that, that there is a know-how to build a program and to memorize 
a program. Now, that's very important as we're going to now describe the next two or three moves as to why it becomes not just a gift that enables life, but also part of the human predicament. Because so where you started was describing energies. And we then articulated this idea that the universe always looks to preserve itself, preserve life, preserve energy. So here is another move that occurred in the evolutionary process, which is that life discovered that it's a lot more efficient energetically to turn a program on and to let it run on rather than turn the, the program off, on, off, on, off, on. So, it's, so that's why, as you said, we don't need to relearn how to inhale, exhale. It's built in and it's never meant to stop. And the day it stops is the day this system can no longer sustain itself. Because programs that get switched off, the investment of energy in reactivating them becomes a very difficult and much more energy-consuming process. Okay, so now we come to describe how that becomes the predicament, because what it means is that it's all wonderful when it comes to the point you made, we don't need to wake up in the morning and think, how will I teach my spleen to work today? How will I teach my stomach to work today? That program is there, but where it comes to the brain and to that other capacity that we said is always unfinished because we can learn new skills, we can build new circuitries. There, the idea of the program and the capacity to program can lead to some of the human predicaments. Why? Because everything we talked about in terms of the brain running amok and becoming programmed to run on toxic processes suggest that the very idea that supports life, the program that, that enables life, is also what enables us to develop habits that are bad for us, toxic for us. But guess what? Because of that built-in mechanism in a program that it wants to run on, it will run on autopilot some of the most disastrous and uh, toxic generating programs for us, but it will run on even though these are bad habits. Yeah. So this is where we begin to bring this idea that the planetary program that supports life in the way we have found ourselves where our brains are hijacked, the very economic logic of the universe that supports life is the same logic that enables us to become agents that attack ourselves and attack life and that's why we are placing the human predicament in and inside its story yeah. with the planetary program. Yes, yes. And if we were like squirrels, cats, dogs, birds, trees, we would not have a predicament. We would simply be part of the planet's organic life, and we wouldn't have the extra ingredient of conscious choice. So what I'm getting at is we have we have a planetary program. And then our human predicament is we can also run our own programs. 
So that's our extra ability. That's our super ability. That's our, our specialness. Like the human is different on organic life, inorganic life than the rest of organic life, which runs its planetary program. And that's as far as it goes. It's staged at that level. You could almost say it's kind of, it's in its heaven now. It's already fully being what it is at 100%. But when it comes to us, we have our planetary program, which is our base. And then we have the super ability to create our own programs. And as you said, that's where the hijacking can happen because no one can hijack our planetary program weaken it we can attack it in different ways we can put toxicity into it and that will cause uh, detrimental results over time but we have the ability to actually be self-determining in that sense and create our own programs but what i see is that if it isn't actually first of all taking account of the planetary programs that we work with and that the planet works with then we can step right off into a kind of fantasy well like like disney world or like the uh, and move into programs as you said that are destructive to us the only time we're guaranteed not to run destructive programs that are actively destructive is during another enforced process that we have which is called sleep i've never met anybody who had a nervous breakdown in their sleep well, people don't attack other people in their sleep. They don't buy weapons in their sleep. They're not taking drugs in their sleep. So funnily enough, sleep is like a time when we often are closest to the planetary universal programs. You look at someone sleeping and you can see them in a certain state of peace. And then they wake up and you see the programming start to run. And it might be they're saying, where's the coffee? I need another drink. Whatever's going on. It's a program that kicks in. And when they're in there in that sleep process, which energetically is when we're receiving our energy charge, you know, it's like we don't receive our energy charge so much from our physical food. It's not our cereal in the morning that gives us energy. It's our sleep. It's the cycle of recharge. And we put to sleep, you know, we're knocked out for that process and we receive that energy. And then what do we do with it? The squirrel mm. knows what to do. Squirrel gets up and is the squirrel and does squirrel things. But a human doesn't necessarily get up and be a human being. A human can get up and be an accountant. A human can get up and be a lawyer. A human can get up and be a person who sells weaponry around the planet. And as long as they're being number one in their field, they feel like they're making a positive contribution. That's why I think we need a school of negative thinking to go alongside it's it's mostly positive thinking people are doing most of the damage on our planet right now because positive thinking isn't enough it's what are you positive thinking about i sometimes hear people say well we're all doing our best and it's like well great but at what you know because if someone's doing their best at being a serial killer they might be doing their best but it's got very destructive results on other people so what programs are we running and we have self-choice and that's the human predicament and uh, i know we'll get to it in another current openings but the idea that self-choice do we really have self-choice if we've been pre-programmed by a religion we were born into a family we were born into a language we were born into a culture we were born into we got normalized to motor cars weapons and all the rest of it how much free choice is left 
to actually be running our own programs and not ones that other people implanted into us. That's a real sort of facing question, I find. So you're compounding the next problems we will grapple with here, but you seeded and you summarized the case of the human predicament in describing that the enforced program we call sleep is when we are forced to get offline, to at least be have a pause yes. on filling our environment and ourselves with, with toxicity. Yes. Some will argue back that, of course, even in your sleep, you can suffer nightmares, which is more than anything, the, the byproducts of whatever it was that you filled into your system uh, during the day. What you also then highlighted is, again, this idea of choice. Because if indeed what we are describing is is true, then as we looked at in recent conversations, for example, how we live now in a culture, in a society that is so full of addictions, right? What are addictions? The the unifying idea of, of all addictions is they run on a program. Something in, the, in that human system was yep. programmed in a way that wants more and more of what creates more and more detrimental side effects. That's the definition of an addiction. You want more of what is bad for you. Why do you want more of what is bad for you if it wasn't for some how your system has been hijacked by a program that you, the environment, the, the ecosystem you found yourself in, enabled you to run on. And you could say at that point, as you argue just at, at the end there, you could ask, are you truly a human program at that point or are you programmed human? Yes. Right? Who is running who? Are you running the program or the program running you? Yeah. And so that's what we are driving into in this awareness of the planetary program. We are at the highest level simply saying the evolutionary process enabled this idea that life develops set of programs, some foundational programs to support the, the higher programs up the, the evolutionary stack. And those are enabling all that we are now seeing with human life. And the, the point we are landing this conversation with is that we have the choice, the ability to choose, the, the, the capacity to choose. And because of that, we can hijack ourselves or we can allow ourselves to be hijacked by destructive programs. And we can also choose to superimpose or elect for new programs that will release us. And the point we're driving into is that that is ultimately the threshold we find ourselves at in these times where you can say the entire multi-billion years evolutionary project as it expressed itself here on this planet led us to the point where we, the, the conscious beings, are now at a threshold of will we allow the self-destructive programs run the show and ultimately become anti-life agents that will self-annihilate? Or will we choose to bring online the project of conscious evolution where we may prefer 
and override and superimpose other programs that are life-sustaining. That is where the planetary program is part of the human predicament story. Yes. And if we take it to the three sisters where we started, one way I think of this is the the exoteric tends to run on the programs that we're given and grow up with. So this is about making our own programs or not. The mesoteric tends to be the more advanced version where the person goes to college or university, gets a BA, a BSc, a PhD, you know, get some letters after their name and one of those flat hats. That's more in the mesoteric. And these are running programs that already exist. The mesoteric is more advanced. The exoteric is more going with what you're receiving. But the esoteric, the journey into the esoteric is the journey to get a hold of the machinery and actually start to program it the way we want to from our own choice, which to me, that is core to the human program. That is creation gave us the a planetary program. And thankfully, we don't have to look after that because it's pre-programmed. We then have the ability to create this second set of programs. And if we take what we're given and not thinking about it and working it through, we may move into destructive actions and habits, which work against not only our own life, but the life of the planet and the life of other people. But when we can get ourselves into the control room, we can start to say, hold on, I don't want the ship to go in that direction. I'm starting to move it into a self-chosen direction. And the key to that, I think, and this is why knowledge is so key to the esoteric, the key to that is coming on the right kinds of knowledge to be able to get into that control room. And um, so knowledge is a key part, I think, of where we may need to go next. Yes. Well, so with that, uh, I'd offer the grounding of the conundrum that we are faced with now, with the arcing back to the story you shared in our previous episode. Because if we say that with the human ability to choose and with the human ability to superimpose destructive programs with life-affirming, life-supporting programs, that this by itself may be the off-ramp technology available for us to avoid the self-eliminating trajectory that we may already are observing, able to observe in terms of the tremendous amount of uh, ecological collapse and habitats and species collapse. Then the question for us is, will we, humanity, the the human project, the, the human experiment, can we pull this off? And I thought about the story you shared because in your dynamite story, you shared that this person actually discovered, realized that out of his own habitual program, he was holding a cigarette in one hand right next to a dynamite. And it took him three seconds to quit smoking. Humanity is now holding a burning cigarette right next to the proverbial dynamite. And the question is, can we do what that person you interacted with, a stranger, shared with you that that, that consciousness-shifting experience, it's, it's as though for one moment he snapped out of the automatic program of smoking. He said, what are you doing? You are just about to blow yourself up to pieces. And that was 
that release of power reprogrammed him. So we are talking about what is it that can reprogram. And what we're seeing here is that the energetic source, the energetic source can be a powerful program shift. And the other idea that you just seated with us, which is where we're going next probably, is that knowledge and esoteric knowledge can be also a way to unlock the energy potential that can facilitate the reprogramming that we, and rewiring that we're describing. Yes. And a key feature, and it's exactly what you're saying, a key feature is that esoteric knowledge, what makes it esoteric knowledge, is that it's not intellectual, it's connected to energy vibration. So when someone is able to get closer to, to the truth of their experience, like in that moment, he experienced the truth, a very facing truth, and it came through with an energy that caused him, it was literally a life-changing moment. And certain truths connect to these energies that can suddenly send a surge. We hear a lot these days about the shift, you know, making a shift, the shift happening. But it dawns on me right now that if there's going to be a shift, there has to be a surge. If there isn't a surge in energy, there's not going to be a shift because, as you said previously, you can't make a change with the same energies that you're already working on. You can't use that a habit, the same habit, to break the habit. You have to bring in something else. So that would be that dynamic of, in a way, new new knowledge that's connected to a higher energetic power. So let's use this as the seeding of our next several conversations, because you also just seeded there the whole idea of change and transformational change and how will that process be unfolded. So, uh, so these are all inquiries that we will come back to and see you all on the next episodes with us here on Current Openings as we explore and as we grapple with technological <laughs> challenges <laughs> along the recording. That's part of what happened today. We had some technological hiccup here, but as part of dealing with the programs of technology while we're trying to rewire ourselves to our higher and more potent programs as we go. Beautiful. Thanks, Aviv. Great to see you again. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.